This is Mr. Day, and this is the Russian Revolution podcast serial from the freshman class of 2023. Welcome to our very first episode of the Russian Revolution podcast. Today's episode will be about Tsar Alexander II, and it brings us a very special guest. The former emperor of Russia, the son of Tsar Alexander II, Tsar Alexander III. Hello, Mr. Alexander. As you know, your father was a very powerful man. What can you tell us about his reign over Russia? Well, he was a very intelligent and benevolent man, a great father and an outstanding role model. In 1861, he passed the Emancipation Edict, freeing Tsars from their laborious lives. That is where he gets the sexy name, Tsar Liberator. You make him sound like a great man, but you realize he had many enemies as he's reigned to a dictatorship, right? He, well, my father was a great man, but not everybody viewed him as so. What do you specifically mean by that? He, my father was a dictator. He modernized the entire country, and yet, for some reason, people hated him. And that is why in 1881, there was a failed assassination on his life where terrorists blew up his dining room. Is that correct? Yes, that is indeed why. And that is also why he was assassinated in 1881 by a member of the radical terrorist organization, the People's League. Well, that was very unfortunate. Yeah, sorry for bringing that up. No problem. Okay, well, we're going to move on to our open discussion session. Do you have any questions you want to ask, Satori? Uh, I was wondering, with all due respect, I heard rumors that your father didn't really improve the lives of citizens. Um... What, what do you mean? Uh, well, I just heard that their living conditions did not improve and how that led to people wanting to remove him from power. Uh, this is ridiculous. I'm done. Okay, well, that went really bad. Well, that ends our first episode of the Russian Revolution Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and have a nice day. Hey, could you toss some of that bread over? Yeah, thanks. Man, I'm hungry. You know, our lives are so bad, it almost feels like we're one of those poor Jews. Haven't you heard? One of Alexander II's assassins was Jewish, and now everyone's giving him hell. Thousands of homes destroyed. It's even spreading to the countryside. Personally, I don't think it matters that the assassin was Jewish. They're probably just mad and want someone to blame. But it's not like the government cares about that. They're supporting the people against the Jews. A lot of them moving to the States, I heard. They, uh, yeah, here's the bread back. Man, I wish we had some more to eat around here. It's all been the worst lately. Most of my crops died before the harvest, and my pay is getting lower by the day. At least the government is doing the best they can to help, but word is that they've got not much reserve because of last year's poor harvest. Every day is just a repeating hell, raising debts and depleting everything. <sighs> On the bright side, at least we're not dead like the few hundred thousand others. When will this drought ever end? I know, right? Seems like it'll never end. Maybe the new czar will bring some change for the better, though. Horrible news that Alexander III died. I heard it was from kidney failure or the like. Wasn't that caused by a train wreck from a few years ago? Anyways, his son Nicholas II is the czar now. Hopefully under him our lives can get a little bit better. Doesn't seem likely though. I heard he didn't want to take the throne. I'm quite fed up with all these czars not doing anything for us. Maybe it's time we brought change ourselves, instead of expecting them to do it for us. Welcome to the USSR. I'm the news reporter, Mikia. As most of you are informed, today is the day of the imperial succession of Tsar Nicholas II. To celebrate his accession, citizens are promised, to, uh, promised an ecstatic gift from our absolute monarch. Now we will be switching to Muku, who is an who's in charge of the town square. I'm Muku here, and I am currently in Moscow, near the Karinka field. 
In front of me awaits a massive crowd who've come from far away to receive their bounty. As mentioned, the crowd is estimated to surpass over a few hundred tau, making this the biggest banquet to be held on Earth. It was indeed under the command of Tsar Nicholas II that large forces of police would be employed in cases of any unfolding events. With this amazing facilitation in process, the citizens, the crowds, seem to have bursted in cheers. Back to you, Mikia. Regarding an update on the event, we'll be switching to Kazu on the report. Right now, I am at the Godinka field. Who could have ever predicted what was going to happen? It is an absolute disaster. As Muka reported previously, today there was a huge event hosted by the monarch here at Kodinka Field. Over 500,000 people came for the event and it was going to be the perfect day for celebrating the accession of Tsar Nicholas II. At first, people were just simply enjoying the event. However, suddenly a large crowd of people rushed forward at the same time, pushing and stepping on each other like wild animals. This was because of a rumor saying that the monarch side were not preparing enough amounts of gifts to go around for everyone. Unfortunately, it ended with the death of roughly 1,300 people. Right now, Tsar Nicholas II, our king, is going around some hospitals to see the victims of the event with his wife Alexandra. Back to you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. No, at the same what? time. Who cares? Let's just start. Good afternoon. This is episode 4 of our Russian Revolution Podcast 2020. Here we have our group members, Juho, Lamanch, and Jamie. Yo, what's poppin'? What's up, man? The topic we will be going over for episode 4 is the 1905 revolution and the bloody sunday. Anything to add? Nope, that's it. Okay then, let's get this started. So first, let's go over on the basics of the 1905 revolution. Alright, I'll go first. <clears throat> the 1905 revolution was a pretty large revolution sparked by an event called the bloody sunday in Russia at 22nd of January 1905 to the 16th of June 1907. So, to understand what the 1905 revolution symbolizes, we first have to understand what the Bloody Sunday is, correct? Sounds logical to me, man. Okay, so now, it is important to talk about what the Bloody Sunday was. Time to get serious. So, Bloody Sunday occurred on the 22nd of January 1905. On that day, Russian soldiers and police opened fire on a peaceful demonstration outside the Winter Palace and also in St. Petersburg, killing and injuring around a thousand citizens. In case you're wondering why Bloody Sunday, that is because it was on a Sunday and there was blood everywhere. Phew, now that's about it. Well, that's direct. Hold on. I'm curious about what the people were demonstrating towards the Winter Palace. It's not an amusement park, is it? Since it's called a palace, it has to be where the king lives, right? You're a very smart person, man. So the Winter Palace was a residence of the Russian Emperor from 1703 to 1917. It was called the Winter Palace because it was built to be warm in winter. The architecture of the interior palace inspired Baroque art. And a little, little fun fact, after the construction of the palace, which took around 8 years, the debris from the construction was given to the people for free. The emperor said take anything and everything from the floor of the palace for free. The only goal was to help him clean the palace. How inspiring. That is all about the Bloody Sunday. Next, we have 1905 Revolution. Till now, we know that it was the Bloody Sunday that caused this whole revolution. The Bloody Sunday gave rise to walkouts and strikes all over the country. These strikes were organized by the peasants, lawyers, doctors, engineers, and factory workers. It is important to notice that these were the people who worked. The reason that they organized a peaceful demonstration is because, I mean, like, God, I can't get this right. I am back. Okay, sorry for the disturbing audio. So why they organized a peaceful demonstration is because 
they were not getting enough wages to live. So they do what anyone would do in a peaceful manner. Jiho, carry on. Okay, as Jamie said, these people organized the revolution as a peaceful demonstration outside the Winter Palace. They formed unions demanding one thing unconstituent assembly. The next topic is the sailors' mutiny on the battleship Potemkin. The Potemkin was an unhappy battleship, meaning that the crew was not happy with the condition of the ship and the resources they were given. It was one of the many ships that was included in the Russo-Japanese War. The crew was not happy because they were losing badly, and one minor incident could cause a major catastrophe. Furthermore, the food they were given was claimed to be rotted. The captain of the ship forced the crew to eat it, and any objections, he said, would make him kill that member. This did not put down the argument for not eating the food and the captain ended up killing and injuring some of his crews. This incident caused other members to revolt against the captain, and so the captain ended up being thrown into the sea and shot with a gun. This is called the meaning of the battle Potemkin. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have any difficulties, please do not contact Levanche, Juho, or Jamie in this with Mr. Day. Instead, rewind the podcast and listen to it again. Thank you. This is your host, Suzanne Halim, and this is the Suzanne Halim Show. This is the fifth episode for the history of the Russian Revolution. I was thinking of doing a Russian accent, but that's too advanced for me, so let's just jump into it. We begin when the Emperor, Tsar Nicholas II, issues the October Manifesto, promising civil liberties such as freedom of speech and an elected parliament. As a result, restrictions are implemented on the absolute power of the Russian monarch. This marked the end of the Russian monarch's absolute power and the start of Russia's constitutional monarchy. The Manifesto created a legislative body which was popular among moderates, so this weakened the rebel forces. The government formally fulfilled its promises on April 23, 1906, but it was still lackluster to the original manifesto. Now that I've laid the groundwork for the Russian Revolution in 1905, let's bring our guest Ishan Patel. Hello, my name is Ishan. I am from Mother Russia. I know that you had a treacherous journey all the way from Russia to Japan. So would you like to have a chance to ask a question? I do have a question for you. It happened in the coup of June 1907. Very well said question. So now let me answer that. The Stolypin's coup is the coup that happened in 1907. This coup dissolved the second legislative body to give more power to the higher classes and take away representation from the peasants and other lower class people. This was done by taking the power away from the legislative body and the prime minister at that time, Pyotr Stolypin. But this did not go as planned, since the Russian Empire fell in 1917. The irony is that, at the beginning, the Emperor Tsar Nicholas II was the one to give the lower class citizens more rights and representation, but also the one to take them away at the end. Okay, now I get what happened in the coup of 1907. Thank you. It was all my pleasure. Thank you for coming to the show. And don't forget to win the fight against Tony Ferguson on April 18th. We'll be rooting for you. I will be here with the audience and until then, good luck with your training. Now that we are done with the main part of our show, let me introduce to our sponsors. The Zoe Wang drink will guarantee an A plus on your test the day after you drink it. Now before you leave, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, the number one podcast in the world, including iTunes, Spotify, and even Google Play. And if you're still thirsty for more content, please go back and watch our whole playlist on the Russian Revolution and other historical events and many more. Shutterstock Music This is Cole McGrath from the new show All Things History and today we're going to be talking about Russia and the relation to the World War. Well, Russia had a very bad economy when entering the war. So after the war, they were exhausted and the Russian economy was left with people starving, freezing and miserable. 
In August, Serbia had been invaded by Austria-Hungary, and Russia had declared war in response. Tsar Nicholas was very busy and his troops killed over hundreds of miners at the Lena River in 1912, which started the building of the anti-government sentiment. The workers at Baku Oilfield walked out from their jobs in June since they were fed up with their low wages and dangerous conditions. After the other workers had heard this news, they also striked their company and in total there were 118 strikes. In the beginning of July 1914, about 12,000 workers from Putilov Steel Paint uh, came down to the capital and were shot down by the Tsarish soldiers. Two were injured and dozens were killed. Of course, the government's response was to deny it. The Great General Strike in July 1914, which paralyzed more than four-fifths of St. Petersburg, Petersburg's industry. A newspaper described this revolution as, We live on a volcano. War broke out in early August 1914. For a few weeks, the grievances of workers were doused by a wave of patriotism. It's very hard to hate the Tsar because of how it is an act of national betrayal. During the months he showed the affairs of the state, however, the outbreak of the war and the public affection reinvigorated Nicholas, which eventually threw himself into doing duties. Fortunes did not last long, which also led to poor leadership. The Russians sent out troops that were not even ready to go to war. They didn't even have any weapons, ammunition, boots, or beddings. The soldiers were even taught to collect weapons from dead people around them. Soldiers did better when there were priests and saw other soldiers praying before they went out to battle. This is an indication of poor leadership because there weren't enough battle strategy for defeating other countries, and there was a lack of awareness. The Russians tried to invade East Prussia. However, the battle ended quickly and they turned out to be defeated. Also, at the autumn of 1915, an estimated 800,000 Russian soldiers had died because of the Germans. Hi, I'm Luke Mineros, and you're listening to Figures of the Russian Revolution. Today on the show, Grigory Rasputin. Who was he? What did he do? And how did he die? Today, we are joined by two experts, Ray. Hello. And Bunjin. Hello. Both of whom have dedicated a life to researching him. They will talk about Rasputin from his birth in Siberia to his untimely death at Moika Palace. Rasputin was born in the small village of Probosky on January 21st, 1869. His family consisted of his father, mother, and seven children, but unfortunately, they all died young. That's unfortunate. So how was his social status? What kind of role did he play in society? Well, Rasputin had risen rapidly through Russian society, starting as an obscure Siberian peasant and then becoming one of the most prominent figures in Tsar's inner circle. You stated that Rasputin became an influential member of the Russian society, but how did he achieve this? Well, Rasputin was a monk. He had his religious attributes combined with his appealing characteristic, which brought Rasputin to the attention of some high upper-class people in Russia, who then introduced him to Nicholas II and his wife, Alexandra. Through this, he was able to become a member of Tsar's inner circle. Thank you, Ray. Very cool. Now, Bonjim will show us why and how he was assassinated. Thank you, Luke. The reason for his assassination was that he was getting too powerful. He had influences over the Tsar and his wife since they believed that he was the only one who could heal their son, who had hemophilia. There are several theories of how Rasputin was killed, but how do you think he was killed? So a group of nobles orchestrated his assassination. Rasputin was invited to one of their palaces and served many cakes laced with cyanide, but it had no effect on him. They also gave him poisoned wine, which didn't do anything to him either. They shot him and dumped him overboard at Petrovsky Bridge. One of the assassins later said that this devil who was dying of poison with a bullet in his heart must have been raised from the dead by the powers of evil. He also said there was something appalling and monstrous in his diabolical refusal to die. That was very interesting. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Figures of the Russian Revolution, and I hope you stay tuned for the next episode. Today we have four special guests. Dmitry Kivansky, pro-monarchy conservative professor in fossil fuels. Pasha Olov, student at USSR University who studies in political science who feels sympathy for protesters. Alexander Utkov, 
a student who majors in women's studies and a part of the pro-woman movement. And last but not least, Oleg Noskov, a change, anti-change, sorry, anti-change, anti-woman conservative that hosts the show Why Woman. So, welcome everyone. Today we have two topics to talk about. The abolition of the Russian monarch and the increasingly popular women's rights movement. Okay, Dr. Dmitry and Pasha, how do you feel about this Russian monarch falling? I must tell everyone listening to this podcast that the abolition of the monarch is nothing to be happy for. The holy land that is Russia has just been destroyed and we should re-establish it now. The idiotic and irrational creatures that believe these terrible things about the government must be re-educated. It must be crazy to believe such things that people have stabbed and suffered because of the government. The abolition was inevitable and correct. The people spoke for our freedom. Interesting. Let's hear both sides of the story. Now let's talk about the women's movement. Today was an international women's day and there was a large scale march like we have never seen before. How do you explain this event, Alexander and Oleg? Well, today marks a beautiful day in history and women's rights. Not only did we participate in the biggest revolutions in the history of Russia, we have made significant difference for all women around the world. Women, statistically a weaker than men. They are destined to be under U.S. ban. Though, I will celebrate the abolishment of the Russian monarch. The woman's march should be terrifying news for all the men. Well, thanks for the conversation and debate, everyone. This was episode number 342. We will be seeing you next week on Thursday. Again, spasibo tebe. Boys, gentlemen, welcome to the official ninth episode of the Russian Revolution Podcasts. I'm your host, ZK. <laughs> And today's podcast is sponsored generously by our good friend Snoop Dogg. Today, I am joined by two experts who are well known for their research uh, on the central topic of today's pod, February Rush Revolution. Now, can I introduce Cheng Hun and Xi'an? Ah, thank you. thank you. Okay, hi, it's great to be here. I like pods, you know. I take them every morning. Yeah, totally, you know. In fact, I'm wearing my yeah. AirPods right now. <laughs> Okay. No, I'm very excited for today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the pod. Anyways, can you tell me more about the February Revolution that happened decades ago? Sure, sure. Why don't you talk about that, Xi'an? Okay. So, the February Revolution began originally as a peaceful Women's Day demonstration. Ah, I see. Alright, Cheng Hun, can you tell us about the background of this revolution? Okay, so by the beginning of 1917, the people had generally lost faith and their sovereign's ability to handle the crisis. The price of bread had already multiplied over 10 times. In February, further bread rationing was declared by the authorities. Go on, Xi'an. Okay, so more about the, uh, the February, February Revolution. On March 8, 1917, International Women's Day demonstrations were held. Women came to the streets to protest against food shortage, and they were joined by the workers of nearby plants, most notably the Pulov. And uh, let, let's talk about how did the people react to this? Oh, well, it was a disaster. People shouted, Bread! and down with the war and refused to leave the streets. By the next day, 200,000 protesters had marched on the streets and by March 10th, which was the 25th of February because of the 13-day delay, nearly all enterprises in Petrograd were shut down. SHUT DOWN I TELL YOU! Anyway, so again was out of town at the Mogilev military headquarters in Belarus, Russia. The chairman of Duma, Mikhail Rodziango, sent him a telegraph, as I quote, Serious situations in the capital, where anarchy reigned. General discontent was increasing. In the streets, uninterrupted firing 
and one part of the troops is firing the other. End quote. Nicholas II did not even respond. Having ignored the news from Petrograd for many days, the Tsar finally ordered the streets to be cleared by rifle fire. Many of the soldiers of the Petrograd army garrison sympathized with the public and refused to shoot. Mutiny spread among soldiers who then joined the protesters. By March 12th, the capital Petrograd was completely controlled by revolutionaries. All in all, around 1,300 people were killed in riots. Damn! What about Nicholas II's abdication? Well, in my minutes of research, I found out that once Nicholas II finally decided to return, his imperial train was not even allowed by the revolutionaries to enter the capital. The Tudor was cut off from the rest of the world in the middle of nowhere, and the Duma presented him with an ultimatum to resign. Okay, and 9 out of 10 of the Tsar's generals sent him telegrams in which they strongly recommended abdications. It is debated that the Duma and the Russian military elites might have made some sort of agreement prior to these events to convince the Tsar to step down. Okay, uh, go on. Finally, on March 15, 1917, which is actual on March 2nd, Nicholas II abdicated. He also did that insane name of his son, Alexei. His brother, Grand Duke Mikhail Alex Alexandrovich, also refused the throne. After 304 years of Romanov, dynasty had come to an end. Well, that was certainly an interesting episode, don't you think, listeners? Anyways, thank you for joining us, uh, Cheng Hun and <coughs> Xi'an. We it was a, it was a blast having you guys here for the last three minutes. Um, <coughs> anyways, to our fellow Potters, uh, thank you for listening and stay smoky. Peace. Hello. In today's podcast, we have a special guest, Ibuki Nishimura. He will be informing us about a great Russian leader. Now, with no further disruptions, please listen. Vladimir Lenin is a leader of the revolutionary Bolshevik who rose to prominence during the Russian Revolution, which put an end to the Romanov dynasty. Lenin was born on April 22, 1870, originally with the name Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, but one day, due to the excursion of his brother with the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, he decides to study law. This led him to join and organize a Marxist group into the Union for the Struggle for the Liberation of Working Class, which is an activity trying to enlist workers in Marxist cause. However, he was arrested with the rest of his members and was exiled to Siberia for three years. Then, on February 10, 1900, Lenin's exile ends and he returns to St. Petersburg. After returning, he continued his activity and in March 1902, Lenin published a pamphlet entitled What is to be done, arguing that the only way to bring socialism to Russia is by having a disciplined group of professionalized revolutionaries. His plans were succeeding excessively through the establishment of the RSDWP which stands for Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party. However, the party started to divide into two sides of militarism and democracy. This caused Lenin's activity to fail and he was once again forced into exile. Then came the outbreak of World War I. This was a great disaster for Russia and they were a complete downfall. However, this also allowed Lenin to finally earn his chance. Due to the February Revolution, Germany gave him help and allowed him to travel to Petrograd in a railway from Germany and Finland. This helped Lenin to become allies with Germany and arrive in Petrograd safely, allowing him to be the dictator of the first Marxist state. After that was a complete success, they won civil wars and battles and eventually won the civil war against the Tsarist forces. Then. 
1922, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics (USSR) was established, and Lenin died on January 21, 1924. After that, Petrograd was renamed Leningrad in his honor, and his comrade Joseph Stalin succeeded him as the Soviet Union's leader. Wow, Lenin truly was the leader Russia needed at the time. Thank you for sharing this with us. Now, sadly, that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in with us today, and see you tomorrow. So recently, there has been news that Pavel Milyukov has sent a telegram to the Allied powers to announce that Russia would stay in the war. Now, luckily, we have the pleasure of having Mr. Milyukov himself join us tonight.、Uh, Mr. Milyukov, what do you have to say about this? Thank you, Mr. Smirnov. I have come here to say that yes. What we are, you have heard is true. For the sake of Russia, we must continue the war with Germany. I understand that the people of Russia are exhausted by the war. However, the point still stands that Russia must stay loyal to its promise of the alliance. I found you, Milinkov, you oversized white blinkick. Who are you, and how did you get into my house? Wait, excuse me, uh, Milkov, sir, is, is there something wrong? Who I am is not important. The war needs to end now. What? That ruined the reputation of a gentleman. Gentlemen, please, reputation, huh? So your reputation matters more than the lives of our people. Without our reputation, Russia is nothing in the modern world. Excuse me, excuse me, S- sirs. Sirs, look around you. Do you think we care? Our sons are dying in faraway trenches, sent to death by your very hand. Excuse me for a second.、Uh, we have some technical difficulty. And so, what if some may die? The future of Russia is at stake here. The future of Russia is dead in some poison field near Tannenberg. Excuse me.、Um, does does this even work? St- I. Understand that you are concerned over the lives of the common people, but I can. You cannot what? You cannot get the message to your stick skulls. You cannot not send our youth to live their last moments breathing in chlorine. I am doing what is necessary for Russia. If that is true, then just leave, leave, and never come back. Uh, well. Uh, I guess that is all for tonight. Uh, thank you for listening to tonight's podcast. Uh, we'll be back online in a very, very short while. Now, if you'll excuse me, I uh, I shall be handling some administrative matters. Matters. And we are back. Recently, there has been news that Mr. Milyukov has. Well, resign from his position, and there is also news that socialists have joined the provisional government.、Uh, aside from that, we have also had news of the twenty percent decrease in rations for those stationed on the front line. Good morning, my friends. Hold on to your vodkas as we are going to dive in another episode of the Russian History Channel. The Jude Offensive or the Kerensky Offensive was the last Russian offensive in World War One, and not a very successful one at that. As World War One continued, the Russian troops started to get very tired, detested warfare, and did not want to engage in any more conflicts with other countries. The Russian people were demanding their freedom, especially our brave soldiers who were fighting hard to protect our land. Nevertheless, in May 1917, the sudden formation of the provisional government occurred. A government that did not care about the sentiments of the people and decided to continue Russia's involvement in the war. Today we have Alexander Kerensky, the leader of this provisional government, who will tell us about his plan for his last offensive. My name is Alexander Kerensky. Under my command, the Russian army was bound to achieve victory and assist our allies, which we owe for joining us in this war. The mass artillery bombardment we conducted shattered the Austrian defense, while the ger- dirty German lads fought back savagely. But we still fought on valiantly. Our men should be used to this style of battle. Their comrades at Ozowiec Fortress charged the Germans under siege and threw chlorine gas, coughing up blood. But then our soldiers fell apart while winning. They make this effort by our soldiers at Ozowiec in vain, and shame their ancestors and their people. Even more shameful is that their comrades still fought. 
The units under corner of the cavalry, the artillery, they fought best as they could, but the others shamefully either decided to ignore their orders and disgust, letting their orders become useless. In the end, this failure was a soldier's fault. And then they act as if this failure was on our shoulders, the provisional government, when they refused to fight for their motherland. Also, our other guest is a Russian soldier who will be speaking on his behalf about this battle. We have had enough of the war. Everything we have done so far was to benefit and bring prosperity to our motherland. As a direct message to the provisional government, we as Russians would like to emphasize that we are tired of fighting your wars. Peace is what this country needs. Thousands of soldiers are frequently vetoing their commander's orders due to their disgust for warfare. How could they claim that the discipline of Russian armies were degenerating if they lied about our planning defense and not offensive battles? Russia is a country with good and bad sides, but leaders like you are the ones who turn our society upside down. Thank you for sharing your perspective with the rest of the viewers. And that brings this episode to a wrap. Thank you for viewing, my friends, and stay curious. The July Days was a spontaneous armed anti-Russian professional government demonstration held by soldiers, sailors and industrial workers in July 1917 in the streets of Petrograd. This involved more than one million people. The Bolshevik planned a peaceful demonstration at first. However, the confused rebellion broke the plan and injured around 400 people. The aborted uprising results in Soviets losing their control over the provisional government, signifying the end of the dual power situation. At this stage, it became impossible to seek a peaceful development of the revolution. The leader of the provisional government, Lvov, and the prime minister, Alexander Kurnersky, crushed the demonstration and the rebel had failed. Kurnersky issues the arrest of Lenin, who fled to Finland with the name of Konstantin Ivanov, while the printing offices of Bolshevik newspaper Pravda, the headquarters of the Bolshevik Central Committee, were attacked, with many Bolshevik leaders arrested, including Leon Trotsky. By this, the provisional government was reorganized, which made Kurnuskay as the prime minister and as soon the death penalty was reintroduced to them and women gained the right to vote and hold office. Welcome back to Accurate Russia News. Today we are going to recap the recent actions of Minister Kurnuskay and explain how they led to the rise of the Bolsheviks. So. To begin, General Kornilov was a conservative authoritarian who hated socialism, yet he was valued by the government because of his skill. Our minister Kerensky even promoted him to commander. He firmly believed in punishment and argued with our provisional government, which led to his resignation. He went back to the battlefield and demanded that execution should be a punishment. Eventually, minister Kerensky gave in. On August 12, 1917, General Kornilov met with Minister Karnisky. The details of their meeting are unclear, so let's start with the facts. On August 12, Kornilov and Karnisky attended a state conference in Moscow. Kornilov took active actions to strengthen the government's authority, but he wanted to crush the radical socialism after the conference. He rode a train to meet several wealthy Russians to get financial support for the military action. Kornilov said, it was his intention to march troops into the capital and arrest the Bolsheviks. Adding on, he claimed that he was approved by Karnisky. Kornilov said, as long as Bolsheviks are sitting in the Smolny, nothing can be done, and promised his loyalty to the future Constituent Assembly. Kornilov's intentions with the provisional government is unclear. Some people proposed that Karnisky gave Kornilov instructions to march troops into Petrograd to crush the power of Soviet. But some people have different theories about this too. Kurnitsky might have wanted to rid Soviet and the Bolsheviks by himself. 
and the evidence is that he did not fully trust the Kornilov. If Kornilov and his army marched into Petrograd, it might cause unrest and if worst, place the provisional government at risk of a coup d'etat or counter-revolution. Kerensky heard this rumor and contacted Kornilov by using Telegram to confirm his intentions. Kornilovsky got a response that he didn't want and by now was convinced of a rebellion. The political outcomes were significant. The lack of indecisiveness during the August debacle embarrassed the provisional government. Kerensky's plea to the Soviet for help led to extreme hate from both sides of the political divide. He was considered as a traitor who left Petrograd and seeked help from the Soviet. The provisional government armed himself with Soviet troops and Red Guards. Soon after the radical socialists were released, the Bolshevik movement re-injected revolutionary leaders into a risky political environment. At this point, the provisional government was so desperate to save themselves, they had to sign their own death warrant. In September 1917, Kerensky attempted to consolidate the position by declaring Russia a republic run by five-man decretory. Adding to this, they also made a commitment to the war, which led to a general strike that paralyzed the railway system in Russia. By the month, the German army had captured Riga in the Baltic and were planning to advance towards Petrograd. The renewed anti-war propaganda campaign by the Bolsheviks attracted a lot of support. The card-carrying members had blown out to more than half a million. Due to this, now the Bolsheviks had the majority of the votes in both Petrograd and Moscow. The Kornilov affair turned the tables and revived Bolsheviks, clearing another path to a Russian revolution. Thank you for listening to this episode of Accurate Russia News. And don't forget, Slava Rodinia! Good morning, class. Today I'll be talking about the October Revolution. Yay! <clears throat> First, after the Kornilov affair in the August 1917, the Soviets began to reveal their organization and their organization structure and manpower reinforced step by step. Lenin, the leader of the Soviets, asked his comrades to commence the seizure of the power, meaning the attacks on the government, but he didn't. Why? Because the comrades reject this idea as mindless. However, the fight was started by Kerensky as he ordered his troops to silence the Soviets on October 24th. Who is Kerensky? He is the second ministry chairman of the Russian provisional government leading the military of Russia. In response, Trotsky recruits his Red Guards to capture government buildings, telegram stations and the Winter Palace being their top priority. Then on the evening of the October 25th, Red Guards completely surrounded the Winter Palace, but the incompetent guards of the palace, not having the slightest hint of an invasion, was not aware of the massacre about to take place. Time passed, and at 9.45pm, the orders came into the Red Guards and Trotsky led Milrev Komto capture ministries and officials who were residents at in the place. So what did Lenin do in the October Revolution? Good question. Meanwhile, the second Congress of the Soviets was taking place at the Great Hall of Smolny. The debate took four hours and hours, and halted by the stress and the endless arguments. The Mensheviks made the fatal error to walk out of the Congress, leaving the fate of the Soviets in Bolshevik hands. Receiving the great news such as the fall of the Winter Palace, the resolution proposed by Lenin had been passed, which meant that the Bolsheviks Soviets had claimed victory to this war. And that's it for the weather today. Seems like a nice, cool inside day with the family again. Oh really? It looks like the rainy month carried itself nicely over the Unity Day celebration, huh? And speaking of unity, 
it looks like the new and improved government are making changes on the country. To be honest with you, I don't agree with most of what they say. How so? The stupid Tsar is gone, and they have a pretty staple looking plan to me. From this point, we can't be sure of the outcome. But for now, let's talk about what we know. For example, the decree on land. Just one of the many examples of mindlessness. The government is taking our land away and publicizing it. It shouldn't be allowed. How could you say that if you haven't lived under it? All people are getting equal land and opportunities for jobs equally. The same boring old job? It's not like we can hire people to work on our land. Think about the extremely poor people with nothing. When the decree settles, all us citizens have to do is work and relax. The government is taking care of the rest. I guess you're right on that part, but still I have my own opinions. How about another one? Russia is withdrawing from the Great War. What do you think of that? It's a great idea. Russia can focus on building its country, while the rest of the world can collapse on itself. Why should we care? But think about it. If Russia withdraws, we could lose opportunities on rewards for participating. Also, Russia will have a great image if we win. If we win. Alright, alright. The final topic. The abolishment of the death penalty. Not this again. What now? They've changed it so many times by now. Well, now it'll be effective. If they stick to it for over a month, maybe. It's a new government. Russia has changed for the better. I don't mean to cut you off, but it's time for a scheduled advertisement break. Don't forget to call in for a chance at your very own propaganda poster. Welcome to the Daily Podcast, where we explore and interview people around our glorious union. I'm your host, Jacob Mansfield, and today we'll be interviewing a member of the Bolshevik Party, Reiji Nishikawa. We will ask him a series of questions regarding the state we're in right now. So, could you please explain to us what the decree of the press is? Yes, of course. So, on November 9th, the decree of the press will come into action. This is to prevent false rumors and any form of opposition towards our great union on any type of press form. We are also completely abolishing the bourgeoisie's press as it has records of false rumors and opposition. This is necessary for our safety and for the union's safety. Okay then, well, could you ensure us a bright future? Most people aren't supportive of this decision. I assure you, it will be the best decision we've ever made. And could you give us an update about our current food rations and limitations for the new system? Yes, of course. To maximize equality with all the people, everyone is given a quarter pound of bread per day with rations that vary every day. However, if you wish so, breads and flour are sold separately if you want extra food. Ah, I see. So. We're maximizing equality. Uh, moving on, do you think that the battle between the Russian and the Central Powers will ever stop, and will it eventually come to an agreement? Yeah, the fighting is already over. We actually signed a treaty between us and the Central Powers. So there's no more fighting, there's no more war. Everything is peaceful. That sounds wonderful. And remember folks, tune in tomorrow for next time's show. This has been Reiji Nishikawa. Hi, this is Aaron Erdos, and you are listening to the 46th episode of the Russian Revolution. One of the demands before the Russian Revolution, which was a period where the Tsars were in control, was to make a constituted assembly that consists of democratically elected representatives whose tasks were to make constitutions for the people, and it was reformed for several years. In late 1917, the assembly was taken control by the Bolsheviks that consisted of the Marxist group founded by Vladimir Lenin and Alexander Bogdanov, who then took the power of Russia and created the Soviet Union by overthrowing the liberal provisional government of Alexander Kerensky, who was one of the opposing parties whose intention was to organize the election of 
the Russian Constituent Assembly and its convention. The Workers' and Peasants' Red Army was the army and air force of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, and after 1922, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The army was established immediately after the 1917 October Revolution, but the name Red Army was abandoned in 1946. The Council of People's Commissioners was created as a Workers' and Peasants' Red Army on a voluntary basis. On April 22, 1918, the Soviet government decreed compulsory military training for workers and peasants who did not employ hired labor, and this was the beginning of the Red Army. Its founder was Leon Trotsky, People's Commissioner for War from March 1918 until he lost the post in November 1924. The Red Army was recruited exclusively from among workers and peasants and immediately faced the problem of creating a competent and reliable officer's corps. Trotsky met this problem by mobilizing former officers of the Imperial Army. On December 25, 1991, the Red Army was disbanded. When the Soviets took over Russia during the October Revolution of 1917, their goal was to drastically change society. One way they attempted to do this was by changing the calendar. In 1929, they created the Soviet Eternal Calendar, which changed the structure of the week, month, and the year. For the urban workforce of the Soviet Union, September 29, 1929 was a Sunday, a day of the rest after six days of labor. Sunday was the prize at the finish line, a day's holiday where people might see family, attend church, or clean their homes. But in the eyes of the Soviet government led by Joseph Stalin, Sundays represented a genuine threat to the war and hum of industrial progress. So for the solution to this problem, the Soviet government came up with the Nepre Ivanka. It divided workers up into five groups and assigned them in all colors, which each group given their own specific day off. It was made to revolutionize the concept of labor, set a match to productivity and make religious worship too troublesome to be worth the effort. But many complained that the rest days defeated the purpose of time off because what is the point of a day off if their wives were in the factory, their children at school, and nobody could visit them? Eventually, measures were introduced to make it easier for families to sync up, largely due to complaints from workers. After 11 years of trial and error, the project was axed in June 1914 and Russia returned to the Gregorian calendar with its seven-day week. Thank you for listening. Nineteen eighteen, third of March. Breaking news! Russia's Science Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Central Powers Germany, Austria, Hungary, Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria, and ends its participation in the World War One. The head of the Bolshevik Party, Lenin, regards the settlement as an abyss of defeat, dismemberment, enslavement, and humiliation. So many of you who are listening to this might be thinking, "Why this was done?" So, starting from the start, the armistice reached as early as in December of last year because of the number of heavy losses against Germany. The defeat on the battlefield fed the growing discontent among the bulk of Russia's population, especially the poverty-stricken workers and peasants, which clearly states the reason behind the treaty. Hello? Yes? Oh. Okay. Yep, got it. Thanks. So, according to reports, the officials have planned for another massive blow to Russia, as by the terms of the treaty, Russia has to give up Poland and Baltic states of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia to Germany and Austria-Hungary, and also give up Kars, Adrian, and Batem to Turkey. Interestingly, the total losses constituted some 1 million square miles of our former territory, a third of its population, or approximately around 55 million people, and a majority of our coal, oil, and some iron stores have the darkest days of Russia's begin. Today in 1918, the 8th of March, five days after Russia had ended its participation towards World War I, we see that Russia just had its 7th Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. 
During this Congress, the Bolsheviks had changed the name of their party to the Russian Communist Party at Vladimir Lenin's suggestion. Now, as to why they might have changed their name, I have an explanation. The decision to adopt the word communist in replacement for social democratic labor can be seen as a way to further establish a communist state. Besides, we all know about the Mensheviks and their refusal to cooperate with Lenin's vision. Putting this in perspective, the change can be seen as the Bolsheviks' attempt to further separate themselves from the Mensheviks and the other uncooperative parties. This particular change in Russia may eventually show to be a pivotal point in the Russian government. The word communist implemented into the party's name suggests it embracing communist ideas in days to come. 1918, 10th of July, several months after the governmental party change in Russia. For the first time in history of Russia, the first constitution of Russian Socialist Federated Soviet Republic is granting equal rights to men and women. This is a revolutionary change in this period of time, since men and women were treated even close to equal, and the superiority always lied on men. Now women and men are striving for equality, and therefore the treatment of genders and humans have changed forever. Stay tuned and keep listening to the Russian podcast. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of History with Junzei. We are continuing our Russian Revolution series, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about the execution of the Romanovs. Now it is time for today's special guest. Let me introduce you, Dr. Joe Collins from Howard University, Professor Dmitry Vadim from St. Petersburg University, and Haim from Yukinjerinburg, Russia. Now, without further ado, let us begin the conversation. Let's start with Dr. Collins. So, Dr. Collins, what do you know about this particular event? Okay, so the Imperial family the Romanovs were killed on July 16, 1918, by the Communist Party led by Joseph Stalin. The last emperor, Tsar Nicholas II, Alexandra, and three of their children were found buried in the forest in 1991. Thank you, Dr. Collins. Professor Vadim, would you like to comment on this event? Yes, let me elaborate on Dr. Collins. Also, Nicholas was crowned in 1896. After the loss in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, the Russian citizens began to become unsatisfied with the monarchs. The war ended when Nicholas approved the Russian Constitutional Assembly and promised constitutional reforms. In 1914, Nicholas led his army into World War I. The Russians were not prepared, so they lost many battles in Germany to a point where his soldiers could not fight anymore due to the lack of food. During World War I, the discontent grew larger and more people believed that Russia was ineffective under Nicholas. Yes. On March 17, 1917, Nicholas II was forced to give up his throne because he led his country to World War I. The economy was getting worse and worse and the revolution was starting. And after the civil war broke out in June of 1918, there was a secret meeting with the Yekaterinburg Soviets and a death sentence was passed to his family, the Romanovs. On the night of June 16, 1918, while Nicholas, Alexandra, the five children, and the four servants were taking a group photograph, armed men came into the house and they were stabbed and shot. Thank you so much for sharing this valuable information, Dr. Mm -hmm. Collins and Professor Badim. Now, let us move on to Hayim. So, Hayim, as a current resident of Yukinsburg, what do you know about this event? Are there any stories or myths that you would like to share with us in this episode? Yes, thank you, host. According to my grandma's stories, these monarchs, including Nicholas, were evil and corrupted. Also, my grandma said that Stalin saved her from poverty and sufferings. Also, according to a town myth, the youngest Romanov daughter known as Anastasia had survived the massive executions. She then escaped from Russia and hid in the countries in other countries. Thank you, Hayim. Now have a better understanding about this event. I think it is time for our final wrap. 
to conclude today's episode of the execution of the Romanovs. The Romanovs were murdered by the Communist Party due to the massive discontent of the Russian citizens. The execution of the Romanovs led to the fall of Russian monarchy and the rise of Russian communism. Thank you for listening, and it's your favorite host Junzei. And see you on next week's episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the twenty-first episode of the podcast. Today, your hosts Min Suk, Tyler, and m- myself, Kyrie, are going to talk to you about the one and only Red Terror. So stay tuned until the end to fully understand what the Red Terror was. On August eleventh, nineteen eighteen, Lenin instructed the following action: Comrades, the insurrection of five Kulak districts should be pitilessly suppressed. The interests of the whole revolution require this because the last decisive battle with the Kulaks is now underway everywhere. An example must be demonstrated. One, hang, absolutely hang, in full view of the people, no fewer than one hundred known Kulaks, filthy rich men, bloodsuckers. Two, publish their names. Three, seize all grain from them. Four, designate hostages in accordance with every, yesterday's telegram. Do it in such a fashion that for hundreds of verst around the people to see, tremble, no, shout, strangling is done and will continue for the blood-sucking kulaks. Telegraph the receipt and the implementation. Yours, Lenin. Use your toughest people for this. A fortnight later, while Lenin was visiting a factory in Moscow, a young woman named Sanya Kaplan stepped forward from the crowd and shot the Bolshevik leader in the chest and shoulder. Lenin received immediate medical care and survived this assassination attempt, though his life hung in the balance for a time. Kaplan was arrested, interrogated, and tortured by the Cheka before being shot. Her motives were revealed in a letter written after the event, saying, I do not think I succeeded in killing him. If I regret anything, it is only that. He is a traitor to the revolution. I lay the responsibility for the treacherous peace with Germany and the dissolution of the Constituent Assembly at his feet. Though it became clear that Kaplan had acted alone, her actions triggered an immediate response against the left SRs and other groups and individuals suspected of anti-Bolshevik violence or activity. All right, so that is the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you in the next episode. All right, that's all. That's it for now, and remember to wash those hands. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's March of 1919, and Lenin has formed a Comintern in Moscow. For those of you who don't know what com- Comintern is, it's to encourage other countries to become like us. It promotes civil war over civil peace because we are the greatest country in the world. Every single country needs to be like Russia. And how did Lenin achieve this when he ignored both right and left members of the government? Well, we won't talk about that. It's for the greater good of us and for you listeners out there. But we guarantee it's totally legal and morally justified. Yes, it is. Workers of the world, unite! We are all familiar with this. It's the political slogan of the USSR, the Soviet Union. 
Today, we know Joseph Stalin as a ruthless dictator who ruled the Soviet Union from the late 1920s until his death in 1953 as the general security of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The rise of Stalin was as clever and manipulative as it was unexpected. Joseph Stalin was born on December 18, 1878 at a small town in Georgia. Stalin was short but physically strong, his face scarred by a bout of childhood smallpox. He spoke bluntly, often coarsely, and could be dominating or overbearing. In his youth, Stalin trained for the priesthood. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, he had a chauvinistic disregard for women and a strong racial hatred of Russia's Jews. This anti-Semitism, combined with competition for the position in the Bolshevik party, contributed to Stalin's intense dislike for Leon Trotsky. During the Russian Revolution of 1917, the Bolshevik party under Vladimir Lenin dominated the Soviet forces. In the USSR, all levels of government were controlled by the Communist Party and it effectively ruled the country. Soviet industry was owned and managed by the state and agricultural land was divided into state-run collective farms. Through the course of 1917, Stalin's position within the party began to rise, chiefly because of his work for Lenin. Stalin earned Lenin's trust by carrying out instructions reliably, effectively, and discreetly. In 1922, Stalin was appointed as the party's general secretary. He filled the key leadership positions with his own friends. Lenin, by now participating less in government, became suspicious of Stalin. Aware of Lenin's high position in the party, Stalin publicly affirmed his obedience and loyalty towards, towards Lenin while working behind the scenes to isolate the leader. Finally, on Lenin's death, Stalin took a leading role at public commemorations. The rise of Stalin ushered in the bloodiest period in Russia's history. The Georgian dictator ruled the Soviet Union for more than 25 years, killing as many as 20 million people. Regardless of whether Stalin and his ruthlessness were deviations from Lenin's model or continuations of it, is a fervently contested inquiry among students of the history of Russia. Thank you for listening.